Hello, and welcome to the Guardian Test Prep Back to Basic Podcast. My name is Dr. Christopher Seitz. I'm an emergency physician, and I'm here with my brother, Jason Seitz, who is a firefighter, paramedic, and RN. Together, we run Guardian Test Prep, an NREMT test prep company that specializes in helping EMT and paramedic students pass their national registry exam. Our Back to Basics podcast was created to make what are sometimes complex medical topics easy to understand and retain for students of emergency care. Please like and follow us on your favorite podcast streaming service, as well as on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you for joining us. And it just, I think it infuriates me because the top is spinning mm-hmm. and then it clearly wobbles, which tells you that he is not in the dream. But for some reason, the end of Inception, everybody thinks that he's still in the dream. And that's like the big twist. And it's obviously not because but they made it very clear that if it wobbles, it's going to fall unless it would stay spinning permanently. Unless he's in a dream within a dream. No. Within a dream. You need within a dream. You can't. Within a dream. You're, you're below limbo now. That doesn't <laughs> <happen>. <laughs> All right. Well, everybody, welcome to uh, Guardian Test Prep Back to Basics podcast. Uh, we're happy to be back with another episode. Today's topic uh, is asthma. Nope, that's not how it's pronounced. Is <laughs> <laughs> asthma. Um, we want to talk about asthma today. I feel like sometimes this can be a boring topic or people perceive it as a boring topic. Because it's common in a way. Does that make sense? Yeah, I guess so. So like I think that we sometimes, I know I do this, is that things that I see all the time, I just assume I know a lot of things about. And then that makes more sense. <laughs> <laughs> I feel it. I feel it. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, but you know what I'm saying? Like we see so asthma, like it's common, right? Of all the right. diseases we see, like, you know, like like chest pain in general. Like, like, yeah, asthma is pretty common and we see it a lot and we treat it the same way every time, probably. And cool. It is what it is. So we just assume that we know it and we know it well. Yeah. Or that it's not that serious too. And it can be pretty. That's true too. Sometimes I think sometimes we see a lot of and we don't necessarily see always the poor outcomes in that situation. We just assume that it's not as life threatening as maybe it it can be, which asthma is obviously one that is extremely life threatening. We really think about it for a minute. But then what ends up happening is I open up a book. I start reading about asthma, and I'm like, oh, my gosh. I had no idea. All these things happen. <laughs> right, right, exactly. So we want to do that today. We kind of want to dive into asthma. Uh, not, not, you know, we're going to keep it back to basics. We're not going to get too complicated. Uh, but let's kind of, again, let's go back and really kind of review what asthma is, how it presents, why we, we use the treatments that we do, uh, and hopefully leave with a little bit better of an understanding. Yeah. Cool? And it might be worth mentioning in here, too, if I can just add on to your Absolutely. podcast topic, is that... Anytime. Um, like... The treatments that we give for, like giving updrafts, basically, mm-hmm. or giving not even updrafts, but giving uh, like combivent things like that, is not the catch-all for all respiratory issues. So sometimes I think because asthma is so common, sure. like I see my guys sometimes being like, "Hey, anybody who's short of breath, yeah, they're short of breath. Let's give them a let's give them an updraft, or let's give them a, a full combivent treatment, like breathing treatment." And it's like, well, we need to see some specific things first. Like the answer right here might not necessarily be opening the airways in that way. Like it mm-hmm. might be a yeah. exchange issue or other things. Right. So no, that's actually a super good point. And I think that sometimes, again, we've talked about this so many times, like being like a cookie cutter medic or a cookie cutter doctor, like you follow a protocol, you do what you do every time. There's, there's some, some good with that. There's like, you need to be able to know what the protocols are, know what the procedures are. But then it can be dangerous, too, because if you just do the same thing every time you see a certain symptom and you never ask more questions or do a more in-depth physical exam, you're going to miss things. And, yeah, there's probably plenty of times where we're given an albuterol treatment to someone who doesn't need an albuterol treatment. So that's kind of the that's kind of the point of today is to kind of like take again, take it back to basics and really think about like, okay, why do we do the things that we do? 
And hopefully then when we see this the next time, maybe we dive in a little bit deeper and, and go from there. So do you want to talk? Let's start and just talk about like asthma in general. When you think of asthma, when you think about calls you've been on uh, as a medic, what what is your typical presentation? Like what do you, what do you like when you think of asthma? What do you see? What do you think of? Shortness of breath. Cool. Expiratory wheeze. Mm-hmm. Pretty much. I mean, okay. <laughs> yeah. right. Hypoxia. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Shortness of breath. Yeah. Hypoxia. Expiratory wheezing. Right. Tripoding um, sometimes with it if it's like an acute attack. Sure. We can talk a little bit about how capnography can add a little comfort because sometimes even after treatment, if you bring someone down from like a severe asthma attack to like a moderate asthma attack, you don't really see a difference in mm-hmm. the symptomatology. So it can be kind of like nerve wracking for sure, the medic. Sure, you know yeah, I mean? yeah. Like because you might not see an increase in SPO2 sets necessarily, but you're still helping. Yeah. And I do want to talk about airway paths. I do want to talk about things that we can use from a evaluation modality to see like, are our treatments working? Are they not working? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Sorry, I'm just going to jump to like the end topics of all this this whole podcast. That's cool. Yeah. Ruin it. Spoilers for we'll you. Work our way time. back. We'll work our way back. <laughs> no. So, um, yeah. So, and, and the big one there that you mentioned is wheezing, right? Mm-hmm. But do we always see wheezing in asthma? No. No, we don't, but right? Yeah. So, and I think that's why people get into the whole like, I'm going to give the treatment for asthma for everything because maybe we won't have, you know. So Right, I, right. But you got to like, that's where history taking is important yes, exactly. and like figuring out like, hey, do you have asthma? And if they're like, <laughs> no, I don't. And I'm short of breath. Guess what? It's probably not an probably asthma not attack. Asthma. So I'll give you, I'll give you an example. So, and, and this is, this, this, we'll, we're jumping into treatments, not treatments. We're jumping into evaluation tools that we'll talk a little bit more about later, but I want to kind of present this case that I saw. So I had this woman who came, I may have shared this before on this podcast. I'm not sure. It may I have during our PE episode, but anyway, I had this woman who came in. Who it's was, a PE. Well, no, it's not. I You're still solved wrong. It. You're actually still wrong. <laughs> no, but I think I was talking about how like things can present differently. So this lady okay. came in. Uh, she was 45 year old female, uh, acutely short of breath, um, tachypnea, and real, real shallow, like restricted breath sounds. So I feel like that's sometimes a lot of times I see that in asthma where they're breathing so shallow, shallow that you can't. Yeah, that you can't hear the wheezing. Yeah, yeah. Um, or they're so tight that you can't hear the wheezing. Yeah. So this lady was. Very restricted. I mean, her. I listened to her breath sounds. Not a lot of air movement at all. So I couldn't really definitively say, "Oh, she's not wheezing." Like I guess she's not because I'm listening. I'm not hearing wheezing, but at the same time, you know, it's so restricted, so shallow. She's breathing like forty times a minute. I mean, like sweating. Stop her there for a second. This is an ER physician, people, and he said, "Wasn't really sure what I heard." Can we get more of that in the field? <laughs> because here's the thing: we get criticism all the time about like. Like, what did you hear? Did you hear rails or rouse? Did you hear, you know, and like sometimes they are breathing really shallow mm-hmm. and you should just be very honest with your, the, whoever's taking the call, like where you're, where you're at with the lung sounds like, Hey, I can't really hear this because it seems so shallow. That doesn't mean that there's no wheezing or that there is wheezing. Or right, that, right, right. But I, I do think that lung sounds are something that's are a little bit, that's a difficult skill to master. And sometimes you just, you're not going to get all the information that you want from it. You're not going to have like a definitive lung sound, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So I just, it's nice to hear an advanced provider say, hey, it was too shallow. So I wouldn't be able to hear if there was wheezing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like the There's tendency this... in the back is to just be like, yeah, here we see, but you don't necessarily hear it yeah. or saying they're clear if you don't, you know what I mean? Like you can paint a picture and say they're breathing so fast or it's so shit, it's so shallow. I, I can't really tell, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, and, yeah. and, and, or just describe it as that. It's shallow. Keep it in the differential. Shallow because, restricted breathing. Yeah. I don't hear any wheezing at this time. And that's why reevaluation is good too, right? We give yeah. treatments, we we re-listen and that sort of thing. So um actually there's this that reminds me there's this Mark Twain quote that I really like. 
And it was like, it's something along the I'm going to botch it, but it's something along the lines of like the most dangerous things are the things that we know for certain that are not so. <laughs> like, like, I feel like that's oh, something yeah, that yeah. happens, especially like in the emergency field where we're like, what do you hear? And they're like, I know I it's not asthma. I hear, <laughs> I hear rails and ronchi in the left lung base. With It's like, I mean, now you're getting too specific. Like, no, you didn't. You know yeah. what I mean? Like I, I, stuff like that. I feel like sometimes right, right. we almost get, or like reading EKG. I, that's my favorite one. Yeah. If you really like the, if you want to know, <laughs> this, this is kind of mean, but if you want to know how advanced someone is in their EKG interpretation, the less they have to say about it, the more advanced they are. So if they look at it yeah, and they yeah. go, I, I don't know. I think, I don't know. <laughs> they probably, probably have been reading good. EKGs They're long enough to good. realize that they don't know. Right? You know what's <laughs> funny is on, one of the Facebook pages that we were kind of on and mess around with, someone posted normal sinus rhythm, just posted normal sinus that's rhythm. And we're like, to do. can, can you help me with this? rhythm? I don't think they, I don't think it was like meant as like a troll thing, but okay. they were like, can you tell me what's, what's going on with this rhythm? It was like an EMT that was just curious. Mm-hmm. And like the first seven posts were like inferior wall STEMI. And I'm like looking at it and I start typing and I'm like, no, don't even bother Jason. But like, it was just normal sinus rhythm. Yeah. There was nothing wrong. People were talking about like, previous infarcts like how would you even know that like how would you know that from you're looking at normal sinus rhythm there was not a a lick of st elevation yeah. there wasn't like i think in the top right corner the machine had printed it out where it was like oh uh, what does it say on it it says like not undiagnosable or whatever like un unable to yeah, indeterminate or, or something like that because it was normal sinus and it's just sometimes it gets it gets funky right. but people the people's interpretations of it man yeah you know that is actually I've done that before. Brugada like, syndrome, like like just all this crazy stuff, and I'm like, guys, like give normal. some evidence, give some evidence. It's a normal right, science right. rhythm, you know. But it is funny, like that. I feel that's the ultimate test to see if someone knows. Like, you want to know a good medic? Show them normal science rhythm. Ask them what it is. If they tell you it's normal science <laughs> rhythm, they're a poser. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. But so, oh yeah. So back to the lung sound thing. So yeah, I mean, I think that if you're doing a good lung exam, like you're listening like four space, you know, four places, and actually doing the if you don't hear anything, you don't hear anything. So this lady, yeah. again, had very shallow breathing, limited Said 40 times a minute. Yeah, but 40 times a minute, real tachypnic, tripoding. You know, she was sweating, short of breath. And I said, you know, tell me what's going on. She's like, I, I'm ha- I think I'm having an asthma attack. Cool. All right, sounds good. Um, And I was like, does this feel like asthma attacks you've had in the past? And she said, well, I've never had one before. That's kind of a little... <laughs> It's <laughs> a little bit of a red flag. It's like you're 45 years old. Like you either have asthma. Like a doctor didn't tell you like, hey, you have asthma and asthma attacks are coming and they could hit you anytime right, in the next yeah. couple of decades. So <laughs> like, so again, I was like, so what do you mean you've never, so I've never had an asthma attack before, but I'm pretty sure this is asthma. I'm like, do you have a diagnosis of asthma? And she's like, I don't know. And like, it was, it was kind of weird. So, yeah. I, and we'll talk about this later, but I hooked her up to capnography and her waveforms looked fine. Okay. Which means that she had no obstruction. Yes. So we'll talk, we can talk a little bit about like shark finning and stuff on the cat magazine, but she had very nice plateaued. Now her CO2 was, what do you think? High or low? I'm testing you. Sorry. It, was it high or low? Well, do you think it was high or low? I would assume it was high. It was low. Because she, was had been, she had been breathing off her CO2. She oh, she's like, hyperventilating. Yeah, hyperventilating. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yes, yes. So her CO2 was low, which I expected, but her, the waveform itself looked very like the normal mm-hmm. plateau, that sort of thing, um, which made me realize that she didn't have any obstruction. So a little dose of Ativan and her anxiety attack was over and she felt great and she went home. Oh. So, but it's, but it's cool. Like uh, I was yeah, able to use that up. as a tool, but again, this is why you can't, like you said, you can't just, anyone who's short of breath, you can't just throw them albuterol and think that that like, you got to ask more questions. You got to listen to the lung sounds. You've got to, you know, 
you know, get that history, maybe use some tools like capnography and things like that. So well, you asked the right question. That's great assessment work to ask. Does this feel like one you've had before? You know what I mean? Like that, a lot of people don't go that extra step and say that we should be saying that with a lot of things, heart attacks, that, you know, like chest pain, anything right. like that, any shortness of breath. Like, have you ever had something like this happen to you before? Because it can paint a pretty big picture for us. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Well, I actually like have found that I get a lot of data from that question specifically. Yes. So like, like when I have people who come in and they're like, I think I've got a kidney stone. I got flank pain. I'm like, does this feel like when you've had a kidney stone before? And if they're like, yes, then I can kind of rest assured like, okay, this, you know, if they're like, no, this is completely different. Well, then maybe I'm not going to hang my head on kidney stone. Right. Yeah. Like the, the patient's interpretation of their symptoms isn't always, you know, correct, obviously. Or if people, like I said, people come in with like headaches. Headaches is another big one where I'm like, does I have a history, you have a history of migraines. Okay, does this feel like migraines you've had before? If they say no, this is completely, like people who have migraines can have aneurysms. People who, you know what I mean? Like yeah. people who have kidney stones can have ruptured aortas. People, so you got it, like that for me, at least in my practice has been a That's very huge. powerful question to ask. So yeah, maybe you can, if you don't, maybe add that to your your questioning techniques for your assessment. But so anyway, so this is so this is an example. So like we, we, we think about wheezing. Again, when we're talking about these symptoms. We think about wheezing with asthma. We don't necessarily always hear it, mm-hmm. right? Um, so, but again, short as a breath, tachypnea, wheezing. So what exactly then, so what I want to talk about today is what's happening in asthma. Because I think it helps us understand why we get the symptoms we get. And then it really helps us better understand our treatments as well. Yes. So there's three main things that are happening in asthma. And if you, if you take the National Registry exam or any of your state exams, this might show up on there. There's three main things that you need to remember in asthma. The first thing that's happening in asthma is bronchoconstriction. Okay. So your bronchioles are constricting. You've got restricted airway. So you can think of this as the, the tubes that are, are, are your lungs are spasming. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're, yeah. They're closing and spasming. Right. They're constricted. You have bronchoconstriction. You get inflammation. So, so now those two, those same tubes are swollen, which is closing off the hole even, even more. more. Right. And then you get increased mucus production. So now in that small little right. hole, it's getting all sticky and clogged. Right. Exactly. So we got, what is our... What is our problem? Our airways are closing off, right? Which is why we hear wheezing most of the time because we have air that can't get out. It's why we hear expiratory wheezing. Right. We suck in and then you hear a wheeze when you're trying to blow out that air because it is trapped in the lungs, essentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what you'll see a lot of times with people with asthma is that they have a prolonged expiratory phase. It, it takes them longer to blow that out through the restricted airways, mm-hmm. right? Um on a, on a separate podcast, we'll talk about COPD and emphysema and those kind of things. Like, and it's similar there. These are obstructive pathology, but the obstruction is to like the outflow, you know, more so than the inflow. Strider is the thing we think of when we have like a blocked upper airway. It's that that inspiratory whistling sound when something's stuck. But expiratory wheezing is we're having a hard time pushing that air out of the lungs, so we have a prolonged expiratory phase. And this is good. I, I want to highlight that a little bit yeah. because this is a really great way, especially when we talk about PALS or we talk about like in, infant assessment of airway, things like that. Mm-hmm. We, we had a request recently if someone could go over assessment. So we're trying to throw some <laughs> assessment things out there, like asking that question, yeah. you know, have you felt this before? But that that is a good determinant. You know, when are you hearing the wheezing? Because wheezing can be inspiratory and it can also be expiratory and they tell you very different things, right? Yeah. One yeah. is going to tell you an, an inspiratory wheeze is going to tell you an upper airway issue, yeah. an yeah. upper airway obstruction, um, whether that's swelling or something caught in there or, you know, drainage, things yeah. like that. Laryngeal spasm. I mean, right. Different things can cause. And, 
and wheezing expiratory is going to tell you lower airway obstruction. So right. that could be a number of things. That could be bronchiolitis. That could be asthma. It could be, mm-hmm. you know, several things. So It's important to know that, too, because, again, the reason we want to understand the pathophysiology behind even simple things, simple things, but like asthma and any anything, the reason we want to know the pathophysiology is because then that helps us understand why we do the things we do, why we see the things that we see, and to guide our treatments. So if we know that in asthma there's a prolonged expiratory phase, which makes sense because they're trying to get that air out, heaven forbid we have to intubate them or they go into respiratory arrest and we end up bagging them. We need to keep that in mind. We need to be providing a prolonged expiratory phase. What you can run into is that if you don't, you can get air stacking and their chest can kind of, their thoracic cavity can fill up with air and now you can have trouble ventilating them. Yeah, you're pushing too much air in. It's having trouble getting out because we know that's the pathophysiology and now we've propagated the problem instead of improved it. And again, that's like what's so nice about getting into the pathophysiology of things instead of just being like, I'm going to treat everything like asthma or I'm going to treat everything like like shortness of breath, like, oh, shortness of breath, air, I'll just give them air and oxygen. Like there, there is more to it. And that's why we we need to learn about not just how to treat things, but the the condition underlying. Right, exactly. And and that's, again, these little nuance. These are, these are the kind of the aha moments I feel like in medicine sometimes where, again, like, like I said, I think I know everything about asthma. And then I go back and I read, I'm like, oh, hey, that makes sense. Why? You know, I mean, these things start to connect. And that's, I mean, medicine is a science as much as it's an art. Like, Hopefully, we're all kind of like lifelong learners. We're always going to be able to dive back into the same topics that we think we know and learn a little bit more and advance it. So I think that's kind of what we try to do on this podcast as well is, is try to do that. So so the, so the three things, again, just to recap. So bronchoconstriction, inflammation, and increased mucus production. So if we have established, hey, this person does have asthma. So I guess we can say, too, like what are some other things? What are the risk factors or causes of asthma? So it can be it can be genetic, you know. What I mean, we can have like you know, it can be a part of an autoimmune um, genetic predisposition, right, to mm-hmm. asthma. It can be from exposure. You can, if you get exposure to certain chemicals or certain toxins or air pollution, you can develop asthma. Um, you can have like an exertional type of asthma that like you grow out of as a child, things like that, like that exercise induced asthma that can sometimes go away. So like I said, these are the different things. Like, and these are the questions we want to be asking. And they make sense with the pathophysiology too, right? If I'm constantly breathing in particles and stuff like that, that's going to increase my inflammatory response, you know, down in my bronchioles. Mm-hmm. And then that increases mucus production. It increases inflammation. Now I have a kind of a hypersensitivity to irritation in that area. You know, and that's where like, you know, that, that's why like people can have this condition. And then when they're dusting down in the basement or something like that, and they kick up dust and then they breathe in that, well, they have like this, this over response to that irritation, right? Yeah, and, and similar to like we, when we've talked about anaphylaxis before, it is asthma in, in a way, it's a disease process. So it's an inappropriate response of the body to irritants or to, mm-hmm. you know, so again, asthma exacerbations then are going to be caused by things like dust or pollen or things that aggravate that our immune system kind of just reacts to a little bit more severely. And then, you know, now we now we're developing these symptoms instead of, just clearing them like we normally would. So, yeah. so based on those three things, I don't. Do you want to jump in and start talking about? Let, we've established it's asthma. So, right. So, yes. like we've done a good assessment. We've done a physical exam. We're like, yep, this is asthma. We know the three things that are happening from a pathophysiological standpoint in asthma. So, what treatments are we going to use and why? Because now it's going to start to make more sense, right? right? So, the problem is trapped air, right? And everyone wants to think like shortness of breath. Like, let's just start shoving air in their face. Like, let's bag them. Let's. Like, but bagging can be 
can be dangerous in this situation because, like you said, you can have that kind of air stacking. Mm-hmm. Um, so you do have to you have to allow for that prolonged expiratory phase. Now, hopefully, you're catching this when it's not so severe that you're going to have to bag the patient. Right? We're only going to bag a patient when they need assistance in slowing down their breathing or speeding up their breathing or breathing at all. Right? So we catch this early enough. Oxygenation, absolutely, right? Because uh, in the long run, hypoxia is what's going to kill them because they're going to have lack of oxygen, right? But we have to take care of the underlying issue, which is that inflammation, mucus production, and constriction. So we would give medications initially that would open those airways up. Um, What we kind of start with as our front line, and we can give this while we're giving oxygen, we would give an updraft or a uh, basically a breathing treatment through the mask of typically CombiVent, which is two different drugs. There's albuterol, which is a a bronchial dilator, so it opens up those airways. And that's a beta agonist, right? So, so it acts on beta receptors to activate what beta receptors do. Right. If you're confused about agonists, antagonists, and things like that, parasympathetic, sympathetic, all that kind of stuff, check out our pharmacology basics lecture because it will make things easier for you. Podcast, lecture, whatever you want to call it. Me talking. So albuterol opens the airways up, and then atrovent basically prevents the airway from closing. So this is an antagonist mm-hmm. that basically blocks receptors that would cause the airway to close. Because we, we're going to have re- receptors that open airways and close airways. It's not just like a light switch where you turn it on and off. You have, you have both. So we kind of attack it from that two-pronged approach, and we prevent it from closing, and we also open it up. And we can mix these medications together. You know, we open them up, we squirt them into the into the chamber, and we attach that to their mask, and then they're just now breathing in this medication. And that's one of the best ways to give it is allow it to just be breathed right into the lungs and then open those up. So that takes care of the bronchial constriction, or can take care of the bronchial yeah. constriction, hopefully, right? We still have inflammation and mucus production. Now, inflammation is causing a constriction of the bronchioles from just closing the space, right? Just because we open the bronchioles up to as big as we can make them does not mean that the inflammation isn't still making that hole very small that we're getting the air through, right? So it's not enough sometimes to just give the combivent. Now we need to move on to anti-inflammatories. Examples would be like salumedrol, uh, prednisolone, and then you've got some crazy ones. Well, like dexamethasone, decadron. Yeah, Megatron. Nope. Bumblebee, Starscream, nope. all those. <laughs> so, so no, anti-inflammatories can be very effective. Well, I guess we should we should preface that. Anti-inflammatories, I think sometimes think of people think of like Motrin, Tylenol. So it's not steroids. steroids. We're talking about steroids because steroids are a um, anti-immune anti-inflammatory, yeah. right? And this is an immune response versus just general inflammation. So we would yeah, we would give steroids because of their anti-inflammatory effects right in yeah, this exactly. situation. Exactly. Right? And then we don't do anything in the field, at least in, per my protocol, to handle mucus production or anything like that. But there are things that you can give that can like break up mucus production, but it's a little bit more yeah, I mean, we usually you're gonna handle it with with the anti-inflammatory. Usually yeah. the mucus production is a result of the inflammation anyway. So if you can take care of the inflammation, the mucus should stop. Yeah. Nuts. And I mean they're they're in the in the hospital setting, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's it, like, I think a couple times in the ICU, I've seen people with like severe asthma that has like led to intubation and then they get this mucus production fill up in their lung and we'll do like 
like physiotherapy where literally like it's almost like you put these like just yep. shake their chest wall mm-hmm, to like mm-hmm. break that up but uh, yeah in terms of like from an acute even in the emergency department i don't really do much about the increased mucus production well when we get into emphysema and stuff like that where you're having that some of that mucus is coming up and you're spitting it out we can talk about like incentive spirometry and stuff yeah. like that like how you how you break that up but in asthma mucus isn't the the main concern it's just right so that's so and those are the two like i said those are our two mainstay treatments but again, I think it's sometimes easy just to we just throw them out there every time someone is short as a breath. But we see now, I think, why, based on the pathophysiology, these two medications are as important as they are and why you need both. Right. I mean, why? Well, if you can, if it's in your protocol, you should be doing both if you believe it's asthma. Another thing that I'll point out is that sometimes you'll have people who had such restricted breath sounds, shallow breath sounds. You didn't hear wheezing. You give them these medications and now you do hear wheezing. That's actually a good sign, right? So you've actually opened them up enough now that you can hear wheezing. Now, if you, I would argue sometimes, if you hear wheezing and then the wheezing goes away, that's probably not a good sign. I would I would say, you know, as a general rule, and I hate to throw out general rules because nothing's ever general, right? But as a general rule, like, you're not titrating your medications to not hear wheezing anymore. Like, a lot of these times these patients yeah. will have wheezing ongoing for a long time even in the emergency department i don't i'm not looking to get rid of their wheezing i'm looking for improvement of their respiratory status in general well and that's this is where i think capnography can come in so if you if you're using capnography and you see a prolonged end expiratory phase representing the the wheezing that's happening you'll see shark finning of these waves Mm -hmm. a lot of people have asked us to do a capnography podcast it's very difficult to describe capnography or even ekg in an audio and even like video audio format with the podcast. You know what I mean? Like if you want information on our capnography and our EKG stuff, like we do have excellent lectures where we go along with you and we interpret that stuff. That's all going to be in our prep program though. So you can check that out, but it's, that is a tough topic. I'm still playing around with the idea of discussing these topics in podcast form. That's a difficult thing. I think too, like, so if you're listening to this on audio only, we do record these video base as well and put them on our YouTube channel we probably could write, we'll try to throw up a little graphic right now of the capnography waveform that we're talking about. What it should look like and then what shark finning looks right. like. So, so. What, capno- and I would argue, and this is something I do argue when I teach capnography, is that you should, I would say you should be using capnography in any person who has respiratory complaints or issues. Absolutely. I, I really think you should. And the reason is, is that that capnography waveform can give you so much more information than like just a pulse ox waveform and things like that. You can actually read these waveforms Again, we teach that in our capnography courses. Yeah. Um, but again, so what happens is because the because of the obstruction, you get this prolonged expiratory phase. So the waveform doesn't plateau. It it like I said, it, it prolongs out so it looks like a shark fin. And that's what I did. So that's what I did when I looked at um that patient who was actually just having an anxiety attack and not not asthma. There wasn't shark fin. She did not have shark fin. So I knew I could definitively say there is no obstruction in her airways right now. Yeah. Which again, if, to be able to say that that that's huge. So if you're using capnography every time, you should be able to say yes, there's an obstructive process. Mm-hmm. Now it might not be asthma. There are other obstructive processes, like we said, chronic bronchitis, emphysema. But we can say whether or not there's an obstructive process or not, and then that's that can help guide our treatments. Um, but that can also help us guide how our therapies are going, right? So if I see improvement of the CO2, if I see improvement of the shark finning waveform, things like that. That's also going to be an indication to me that my 
treatments are working. And that's what I was getting at is that the if you have a severe asthma attack and you start treating it, you may bring them down to a moderate asthma attack. But to you, the, the symptomology, like you're going to be looking at the patient, they're going to look as just as much in distress as before, right? So, and, and the presence of wheezing might not be gone, like you were saying, right? So you might not have like fixed all the problems. It's not just titrate until they all go away, right? But when you look at the capnography, if you see a smoothing out, of that shark finning or less shark finning, more plateauing, well, you know your treatments are working and you're attacking the right the right pathway to, to defeat the, the disease process, right? So that's why it's very much worth, I think we don't love capnography a lot of times in the field because it's not a treatment tool, it's a, more of a diagnostic tool, right? But it can very much guide us and help us out with how, how we're doing with it. The other thing I want to mention is that, remember we talked about this works with asthma, and we can't just do this with every type of treatment. If you had an inspiratory wheeze and you had Strider, and we gave CombiVent and steroids, is that going to do anything for your Strider issue, your no. upper airway obstruction? No. No, right? Because it's working on the bronchioles, so it's going to open up those lower airways. It's going to reduce inflammation in the lower airways. It's going to help with mucus production. But if you have an upper airway obstruction not going to do anything for that right so the steroids might help with inflammation over a period of time long term yeah right but yeah but but again it, and sometimes the same therapies work in some way shape or form but really is that the, the 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 definition of a good emergency provider is knowing why you're using the right treatments for the thing that you're using for not that we always know right sometimes we might say hey this looks like an obstructive process i don't really know if it's asthma or not but I know it's an obstructive process, and that's why I know that these medications will work mm -hmm. or why I'm going to use these medications. So, again, that that really, I think, is what separates providers in terms of the people who truly understand the medicine behind what they do and those who just can follow a checklist. You know? Right, right. So just that's something to pay attention to. Pay attention to the inspiratory versus expiratory um, wheezing because that's going to give you a totally different pathophysiology and possibly a totally different treatment process. Yeah, Absolutely. Last two things I want to go over is two other more advanced treatments that we sometimes see used. The first one is magnesium. Uh, in advanced severe asthma exacerbations, a lot of times, especially in the emergency department, you'll see us give them magnesium. Um, the reason behind that is that magnesium at higher dosage, like two grams of magnesium, does actually cause some bronchodilation. So that's why. I like to throw that out there. Just like, You guys probably don't do that in the field, but again, if you, if you see that used as an advanced treatment, you'll see it in the literature. So... And the other thing is I want to talk about is BiPAP. So do you want to talk a little bit about what BiPAP does in the short term? Yeah, BiPAP or, or CPAP. CPAP, so yeah, I guess CPAP. In, in the more. field, most of the time we have CPAP machines, you know, in, in the back of ambulances. Um, if, you're in, if you're a hospital provider, you're probably going to be using BiPAP. Okay, let me explain what CPAP is. Yeah, <laughs> CPAP basically is while they're breathing. You can only give this to a patient that can control their own airway. If you think that they're about to go apneic or they're in like respiratory failure where they're starting to not be able to kind of keep up with their breathing, do not give them CPAP. It's going to, that's going to be a disaster, right? right? So you put this on, it's a big mask. You put it on the patient, straps to the back of their head. And then as they breathe, as they breathe in, it forces air in to pop the alveoli open. And if you remember the alveoli um, and, and to keep them open, the alveoli are those grape-like clusters in the bottom of your lungs where oxygen exchange happens. Sometimes what happens is with lower airway obstruction, those alveoli can kind of collapse. And what we want to do is we want to keep them open to increase the surface area where we're having all this oxygen exchange happen. So as they breathe in, it's forcing air in. Um, BiPAP will work in both directions. So as they breathe in, it's forcing air in. I don't quite understand BiPAP too much, but basically when they're breathing out, it also helps them breathe out. 
Like, well, I mean, it's so not like a suction, but it's you, a... Yeah, so you... With BiPAP, and we won't get into it, but like in BiPAP, you can basically have a certain amount of pressure when they're breathing in, and then there's still pressure going in when they're breathing out, but it's, you know, like less or more in order to like keep those airways uh, recruited. Yeah. If that makes sense. So, well, so then there's, not, you know, there's PEEP that's involved with that, which is basically like like the, the force that they're... So PEEP is essentially... It stands for... Um, Peak end expiratory pressure. So, so the end of expiration, end of- how much pressure is left that keeps those alveoli open. So the reason, if those alveoli are collapsing, it means our PEEP is very low, right? Our peak end expiratory pressure is very low. So what we're doing is that we're, through CPAP or BiPAP, we're keeping that back pressure in to keep those open. So we're keeping the, we're, we're increasing the PEEP, okay? Yes. So that's, that's kind of the goal of CPAP or BiPAP. The reason I bring that up is that that is a temporizing measure. That does not treat inflammation. That does not treat bronchoconstriction. That does not tr- yeah, treat increased mucus production. Keeps their airway open for long enough for you to do those treatments. Exactly. And I think sometimes this, like, because I've seen this lost on people sometimes, even like medical students and residents that I've worked with, is they say, well, he's not responding to the treatments, so I'm going to put him on BiPAP, um, when really they probably should be moving to intubation, right? The patient's decompensating. The treatments are not working. BiPAP, CPAP should always be used as a bridge. So either a bridge to intubation gives us time to prep and intubate or a bridge to using the medications that will hopefully, you know, relieve the inflammation, obstruction, mucus production so that they can come off that BiPAP then and have just regular nasal cannula. Right. So, um, so yeah, so I just wanted, like I said, those are other, other two treatments we want to consider based on the symptomatology of our patient, but that's pretty much it. Obviously, you know, in terms of complications of asthma, um, like you, t- you spoke on earlier, like respiratory arrest, um, obviously there's a lot of morbidity and mortality with, you know, someone who has frequent asthma exacerbations and things like that. It can be uh, detrimental to quality of life and things. So again, like these are kind of givens though. Uh, but that's pretty much what I wanted to cover in terms of asthma. So that pathophysiology, those three things that are going on, and then through that understanding, really looking at what treatments we use and why and why they work, and why maybe they don't if we don't actually have an obstructive process. So mm-hmm. how do you feel about that? I feel good about it. All right, that's great. That's all that matters. So, all right, well, that's it. Thank you guys for tuning in. We will see you next time, and uh, we hope you have a great week. Stay sweet. Hey, guys, we hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you did, we'd love for you to check out the rest of our content at guardiantestprep.com. We specialize in preparing EMT, AEMT, and paramedic students for not only their school, but also the National Registry exam at the end. Enter EMT Test Prep with over 15 hours of videos, workbooks, question banks, and everything you need to pass. We'd love to have you get involved. Again, guardiantestprep.com. Check us out.